Hello, church. In this episode of Male and Female in Genesis through Revelation, one of our elders, Brian Thornton, explores the day of Pentecost. For those of us in Churches of Christ, the book of Acts is a big deal. It's a familiar book for us, and it plays an important role in this particular conversation. We'll be discussing this episode on our Wednesday night Zoom on October 21st. If you have any thoughts or questions, please give me a holler. We'll frame our conversation around the responses we receive. Thank you for your participation and prayer in this important discernment. Church family, I want to start off with a word of thanks and just thank you for taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. When, as an eldership, we decided to enter into a year of discernment back last July, I don't believe that any of us foresaw a global pandemic uh, anywhere on the timeline. And COVID-19 has certainly disrupted this process, but you guys have been so supportive all throughout this. Um, We took a break for a little bit at the beginning, and as we decided to sort of relaunch our study in a podcast form, uh, you guys have been so helpful in listening, in offering uh, suggestions, in bringing questions, in bringing your insight and guidance. And I just want to say on behalf of the eldership, thank you for that, and please continue doing that. Uh, This process is made so much better with your participation, and and so we really want to thank you for that. Um, Just a reminder about what we are doing. Uh, Over the last decade or so, we've been having a a, a lot of conversations uh, just about the role of uh, gender in our, our body, and Specifically, over the last couple of years, uh, just the eldership has been talking and studying and really asking the question, are we being more restrictive in our view of Scripture than maybe the Spirit intends? Or maybe in our tradition, uh, are we being more restrictive in our views on what women can and cannot do in our body than the first century church would have been. And we have answered that question in the affirmative, that yes, we are being more restrictive. And so we decided to enter into a period of discernment um, just to study together and to try and examine what unity would allow in our body. As to why we're doing this, just a reminder, um, as we have talked to others that have been through this process, as we've talked to other churches, other individuals, one of the things we heard over and over is we wish we had done a better job bringing our membership along with us. And and so to, to be clear, we believe our job as shepherds involves teaching, Um, And we never want to be in a place where uh, you go home for Thanksgiving or you go home for Christmas, Lord willing, this year. Um, And you get the question of what is going on at Ackland Avenue. 
and you're like, well, our, our eldership is deciding to make this change. No, we, we want to bring you along with us. We want to be transparent uh, in the things that we are studying, in the ways that we are interpreting um, and, and what we're doing so that you really can um, study along with us, that you can give voice to that and, and speak to that. Uh, we appreciate everybody's attention over the last several weeks, and today we are going to be talking about Acts, the second chapter, um, specifically Pentecost women and their role there at Pentecost. If you'd like to grab a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along with me. Church family, in our tradition, I would argue that there is no other passage in the Bible that has more significance to our tradition than this one. You know, we don't memorize a lot of scripture anymore. There have been studies about biblical literacy in America and how it's declined over the last few decades. Famous speeches with biblical imagery given by people such as Dr. King or President Kennedy would fall flat today because we simply don't know our Bibles like people's past. We're worse for this. Um, but that's a podcast for another time. But let's do a little thought exercise together. Make a list in your head of the most known scriptures, and let's list them, maybe family feud style. Uh, so picture that big board up there. Let's assume for a moment that we've got a group of church-going Americans together, and they're asked to list the top scriptures known by memory. What will they list? Well, we'd almost certainly lead off with John 3.16. Top answer. Known by sports fans worldwide because of all the fans in the stands with those signs over the years. And we get, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Uh, we would certainly get Genesis 1-1 in there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If somebody like Henry is on that panel, we'll almost certainly get a, a verse with some novelty value like uh, John 6:35, just that shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. But if there's a Church of Christ person on that panel, we're going to get Acts 2.38, and everybody's going to look at them like, what? But we know this verse. It might as well be one of the foundational pillars of our tradition um, that we believe in adult baptism by immersion. Acts 2 is our chapter. And tonight, I, I want to take a, a wider look at this passage for a few minutes and, and just challenge our thinking for a bit. Because when we look at this passage as curse reversal people, this passage has giant implications for our thoughts and our actions. We're going to need to look at this text and ask ourselves, do we believe this? And assuming that answer is yes, we have to ask ourselves what we believe about it. Are we just reading a description of event, another Bible story, if you will? Or do we believe, as Peter will testify, that the words of the prophet Joel are being fulfilled in the presence of those gathered and that that will change things from now on? If we're going to take this whole passage as written, we have to consider the implications of this prophecy being fulfilled both then and now. So let's read the text together. Feel free to grab a Bible if you like. For context, we'll pick up in chapter 1 to capture who we're talking about. So starting in chapter 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned from Jerusalem, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, 
a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now we'll pick up with chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much new wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Listen here in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David says about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, 
I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and God knew and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, and here's our verse, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So what do we have here, church family? Right up front, we have about 120 people, men and women, that we're talking about. In the last 50 days, they've been through absolute lows. Chaos coupled with fear about what might happen. Confusion as women found the tomb empty. And then joy as a resurrected Jesus revealed himself to them. Jesus spent about 40 days with them. He's been taken back up, ascending to heaven at the beginning of chapter one and left them with instructions to wait for what my father has promised. So we've got this group of people. They're told after 40 days with Jesus to wait in Jerusalem. They're waiting for the restoration of the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't tell them that they're wrong. He tells them that they don't need to concern themselves with the timing but to just wait. And then Pentecost happens. And it's immediately so much more than they could have expected, even in their wildest imagination. And I wonder, church family, if we don't find ourselves in kind of that same place even today. Uh, John Mark Hicks, as I was reading some on Pentecost, uh, said something that, that stuck with me uh, regarding this passage, that whatever we might say about it, is less than it fully means. And man, I, I think that's true. But now we find this core group gathered at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends on them really like an explosion, like a, 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 a wild wind. And it attracts other people. Things are about to change. And I would love for us to just consider a couple of points for a moment. First, 
that the Holy Spirit came and descended on everyone there, the whole group. I think it's significant uh, as we name the, the people uh, up in uh, chapter one that we, we've got the apostles named and then we've got and the women. There's a decent chance, especially as we look at uh, Luke's narrative of the early church. Um, certainly, we know that uh, a lot of the church's uh, early benefactors were women. A lot of Jesus's followers were women. Uh, think of the story of, of Mary and Martha, where uh, Jesus exhorts Martha regarding Mary, who had taken a, a seat at his feet to say, do not deny her at her place at my feet. Uh, the same place his disciples would have been sitting and learning. Um, the spirit came and descended onto everyone, the whole group. There is zero indication in the text that it was limited to just the men. You just can't get there from the text. There is every indication in the text that women were among the group prophesying on the day of Pentecost. More than that, the end times prophesied by Joel are inclusive, not just of gender, but of age, of race, and of social status. Um, let's go back up to the text for a minute in, in verses 16 and 17, uh, where Peter speaks to them and he says, listen, he said, the prophet Joel is being fulfilled here. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. In verses 16 and 17, Peter is saying that these words of Joel are being fulfilled in their hearing, that the last days or the end times, as some translations have it, are being fulfilled here. Notice that language right up front uh, in, in verse 17. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Notice how that harkens back to Genesis 2. Uh, where God says uh, when a man will, will leave and, and cling to his wife and they will become one flesh, now we have all flesh. So in this uh, second point, I want us to consider it, it's that Jesus, upon his resurrection from the dead, broke that curse that resulted from Adam and Eve eating from the tree of life in the garden. All things have not been made new yet. We're not yet to the new heavens and new earth of Revelation, but the curse has been broken, and it has been broken for good. Jesus' death ushered in these last days spoken of by the prophet Joel, and y'all, we're still in those last days. That's right. If we really believe what's written in this passage, we can't look at this like it's just another Bible story. We're still in those last days. Certainly those who were there on that day of Pentecost would not have thought we'd still be in those last days 2,000 years later. If we read to the end of chapter 2 and then later on into Acts, we see that these words affected their actions. And that early church began to act like these truly were the end times. But here we are in the same last days Peter spoke about to that crowd. So what does it mean to prophesy? I, I would love for us to maybe think about that for a few minutes, because if you're like me, you may have historically held a view of prophecy that somehow held foretelling the future as sort of its core. 
And maybe there's some truth in that. Most of our Old Testament Old Testament prophets do tell of things that will happen to Israel sort of in the future, if you will, as a result of their sinfulness. But maybe this view of prophecy both then and now is a little bit too narrow. The foretelling of the future is an end product of the prophecy, a natural consequence of Israel's behavior. When the prophets of old went to the people of Israel to speak, they spoke words that were inspired from the Lord to the people. The prophecy was a message from the Lord. The foretelling of the future was simply a part of some of those messages. I'd argue that we need to look at prophecy as spoken of here by Joel and certainly by Peter when he is referring to the prophecy of Joel as hearing inspired words, if you will. If we use a definition like that, can you think of any times you've heard prophecy? I sure can. The final point I'd like us to consider for a minute today is the context that we put this passage in. Was it, as our tradition has often believed in the past, something that happened once and we've been told about it, like we're somehow reading the paper of record here in Acts, that it was something that was done then and now it's done? Or do we believe that Peter is saying that the Joel prophecy being fulfilled in their hearing ushered in a new era? And you can't put that back in the box. Do we believe the back half of verse 38? We all know that repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But do we believe the and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? You know, it's, it's only been in the last few decades that we've grown more comfortable talking about the Holy Spirit in the churches of Christ. Bless all of my Sunday school teachers growing up at Sandy Springs Church of Christ. Those women and men uh, were so formative in those early years of my life, and some of them uh, are, are remain formative to me to this day. Uh, believe me when I say they covered the repent and be baptized appropriately. But they might have been a little light on the and receive the Holy Spirit. It's just not something that we were truly comfortable talking about back in the day. But y'all, we can't look at the text and think Pentecost is a once and done situation. Consider a few other examples in the book of Acts. Let's go over to chapter six and the appointment of the first deacons. You get that they're appointing seven men who are well attested and quote, full of the spirit. Chapter seven is Stephen is being stoned. Uh, we have him being described as full of the spirit. I, I, I love chapter eight. Where, where Peter and John go to Samaria to pray for the believers that Philip has been preaching to. These, uh, you know, Samaria, it's not just uh, another region. It is home of the Samaritans, uh, ethno-religious group uh, that predate the, the Babylonian captivity. Um, they... And uh, the, the Jews both believe that they are sort of the uh, true holders uh, of the, the true promise of God. Um, but they're enemies. They don't get along with one another. 
But Philip has been over there preaching to them, uh, and they have not received the Holy Spirit yet. They have just received John's baptism. And, and so Peter and John go to, to Samaria to pray for them, and, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and everyone is amazed. Uh, chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. Ananias lays his hands on Saul, and Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and then finally, in chapter 10, we've got the conversion of Cornelius and his family, and they receive the Spirit. And I, I love chapter 10 because we've got all the Jews who are with Peter as he's gone over here to, to preach, or, or he's gone over here to obey God and, and go see what Cornelius wants. Um, and, and all the Jews who are with him are amazed that these Gentiles uh, have received the Spirit as well. And it's worth noting that Peter gets recalled to Jerusalem after this. Even the early faithful amongst the Jews can't understand why Peter has gone to the Gentiles. And it takes a full explanation. Peter goes back through the whole story again about the sheep coming down from heaven being told to, to take and kill and eat and rejecting that and, and going to Cornelius. It takes that full explanation before they rejoice at the news. And those Gentiles, Cornelius and his family and all of his people in his house receiving the spirit are the reason that we're having this conversation today. Y'all, we can't look at Pentecost and what happened on that day and not have it affect our faith in our actions today. As we wrap up, I would love for you to consider what it means that that Joel prophecy was fulfilled on Pentecost and what that means for us. Do we believe that that prophecy was fulfilled? Do we believe the new era began that day and that we're still in it? That the last days are here and that we're closer to the new heavens and new earth of Revelation than we are to the curse in Genesis? Do we believe that our sons and daughters will prophesy? Man, I do. Just off the top of my head, and this isn't in my notes if you're reading along with the transcript. Um, man, I can speak of several. One day early on in, in this year of discernment, I sat with Bill and Fran one afternoon, and they both spoke words to me uh, that were so encouraging and so uplifting that I believe them to be prophecy. Uh, in meeting with so many of your families as a part of this discernment process, I, I can speak to, to, to one evening uh, where Ashley Hoskins uh, told us we better not screw this up and then began to preach the word of the Lord uh, that this was going to be okay because God smiles on this church. And I believe that was prophecy. Uh, I can talk about having the Sternbergs over at my house uh, one evening for dinner and, and just talking about uh, a, a particular issue uh, that, that I, I had been struggling with. And Jennifer, uh, considering that for a moment, uh, and in one sentence, speaking something that made it so clear and had made so much sense that I, I believe that was prophecy. Uh, Williams Carruthers, when JP and I met with him, because as we entered this process, we were 
so concerned uh, about uh, being transparent with the brothers and sisters we love over at Lawrence Avenue. Uh, he spoke words to us that if you had asked me to come up with what is the furthest thing out there he could possibly say, I would not have come up with that. And yet I left so encouraged and so uplifted. And I believe that was prophecy. Uh, I can speak to Alwanda Carruthers. Sister Carruthers has been hugging my neck for 15 years. When we're in their building, when they're in ours, when we're at the park together at a picnic or when we see each other out in public. And every time she gives me a hug, she speaks words to me about the future of our churches. Man, that, that I so want to believe, and I have to believe that's prophecy. Y'all, we don't have to look far for prophecy in our church body. Maybe, just maybe, we just need to attune our ears to be able to hear it. I thank you guys for, for listening. Um, we definitely welcome your comments and your questions. Uh, please email those to us. Uh, give us a shout. We would love to talk about those things. Thank you guys, and we look forward to talking to you soon. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, a podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.